0: Hello, and welcome to the SSP Weekly Podcast, where we dissect security and foreign policy stories from this week, and we talk about life in D.C.
1: We are your hosts, Gareth Smythe
0: and Miriam Pasternak.
1: We are the directors of the Georgetown University Precision
0: Guided Podcast. And we are very excited that you tuned in today. Today, we're talking about the new U.S. export controls on China, released on October 17th.
1: And then we catch up on AUKUS and the bilateral relationship with Australia. Why don't we start from the beginning?
0: Yeah. From the good morning. Is uh, Is this the beginning?
1: (laughs) Yes. Okay, go ahead. Good morning, Gareth. Good morning, Miriam. What story do you have for us today?
0: My story today is about China and the U.S., particularly the recent developments in the U.S.'s response to Chinese chip industry, because the Biden administration on October 17th, so a few days ago, unveiled some new curbs, which might have slipped under the radar amidst the global headlines. Um, But I wanted to cover it because I think there are some really serious strategic implications that would be interesting to um, to explore. So. The Bureau of Industry and Security, BIS, which is, of course, under the Department of Commerce, they have introduced these new rules and basically their revisions build upon restrictions that were initially put in place a year ago on October 7th, 2022. Now, Gareth, you might remember that a year ago, Jake Sullivan, of course, the National Security Advisor, he visited Georgetown right around that time and... Reading these news just a few days ago, it reminded me of something that he said back then. So I looked up a speech. Of course, it's on um, on the White House uh, website because it was the first time he unveiled the national security strategy. And he talked about this term, small yard, high fence. Are you familiar with that term? I'm not. Oh. I mean, I heard Fantastic. it when he said it. But uh, you <laughs> okay. can explain. So small yard, high fence is... A policy it's like a term used when it comes to protecting critical technologies when the US protects certain areas in a very restricted sort of landscape but with a very high fence so they, they implemented these restrictions a year ago exactly a year ago and now a year later not only are they continuing this policy but they're also t- slightly tightening it to prevent China from modernizing its military capabilities um, because, as as BAS explains, it poses threats to national security interests, not only of the United States, but also of its allies. And um, these new rules, they go into effect on November 17th. Therefore, I sit down with Harrison Derland, a fellow SS peer, who focuses on exactly this, on AI, on emerging technologies. And we talk about not only the implications of these new rules, but also... Mm-hmm how these new measures are different from the initial one. So, do you want to listen to what he has to say?
1: Uh, Totally. Harrison is a great voice to hear
0: from on this. Awesome. Harrison, welcome to SSP Weekly.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, First of all, could I ask you to introduce yourself?
2: Sure. So, I am a second-year student here at the Security Studies Master's I am a tech and security concentration and I work at the Forecasting Research Institute.
0: So today we are, of course, talking about the Biden administration's new rules further constraining Chinese access to advanced computing and artificial intelligence technology. That's of course quite the mouthful. So my first question is whether you could break down these rules for us and explain kind of your take on what they
2: mean. So, as you kind of hinted, the rules are quite complicated in some ways, but there are some high-level lessons that you can take away. So, the original rules in last year's October imposed restrictions on chips that met certain parameters, uh, such as the interconnect speed, Uh, which refers to how quickly the semiconductors can talk to each other, basically, which is very important for things like AI training and other things in that regard. And then another important parameter is the compute density, basically. So you have these two parameters, the interconnect speed and also the compute density. And so chips which had both a certain level of compute density and interconnect speed could not be exported to China. However, it was possible for companies such as Nvidia to design new chips which had basically lobotomized or um, downgraded uh, interconnect speed in order to then be exported to China. And so these were the A800s and the H800s. And many people complained about this and said that they were circumventing the rules. However, now the rules have been updated to no longer require a certain level of interconnect speed. And that means that they basically, if you are above a certain level of computational density, then the chips can no longer be exported. And this would apply to the A800s and H800s. So the new rules also impose some restrictions regarding uh, by adding the number of firms on the entity list and also by just imposing additional constraints on the countries to which you can ship some of these chips uh, in order to address the problem with China relying on subsidiaries and shell companies and other ways of circumventing the export controls to China.
0: Mm -hmm. And this, of course, also might influence other countries, right, and their production, because now the export controls concern any product that has like an American component in them, as far as I understand. Is that correct?
2: Yes. So this is referring to the foreign direct product rule, which is one of the major ways in which the United States leverages its presence in these supply chains to restrict where you can or cannot sell these or export these chips to.
0: Hmm. I see. These export controls, um, how effective have they been and are they anything new or is this just a continuation of what the U.S. sort of has always done?
2: So the export controls that were imposed last year were definitely new and were fairly impactful and got a lot of attention here in the Beltway as people saw it as somewhat of a departure from the kind of Washington consensus of we're just going to be better, we're going to innovate faster, run faster, and also we think it's better to have uh, trade connections with China to keep them dependent on our technology, things of that sort. But this semiconductor export controls that were imposed last year kind of clearly signaled that the United States is moving away from that, and at least with regards to these critical high-end technologies that China can use will for dual purposes, including surveillance of its population and and its military capabilities, that America wants to limit China's access to this. And we no longer just want to stay one or two or three generations ahead. As Jake Sullivan said, we want to try to stay as far ahead as possible Mm -hmm. and limit their progress as possible.
0: So I wonder, export controls is of course one tool in the toolbox, but is it always effective? Like, what can be the cons of export controls, or like, how do you time export controls for them to be most effective?
2: Certainly, export controls are not the only tool we can or should rely on. It is very important to also coordinate this with our allies so that it increases the effectiveness of the export controls. One of the cons. Is that it can undermine the effectiveness or the profitability of American companies that design and ultimately sell these chips, uh, such as Nvidia, and they are quite unhappy about that. Um, then, another potential drawback of these export controls and leveraging the foreign direct product rule is that it might encourage some other countries to de Americanize, so to speak, their supply chains so that they don't are they're not subject to these kinds of rules so that they're still able to sell to China. It can also just cause animosity between us and some of our allies if we do not uh, coordinate well with them and or if we just, uh, it costs their companies money.
0: Could you elaborate a little bit on the timing of imposing export controls and how that contrib- contributes to effectiveness?
2: See, there is this debate in the beltway among various think tankers as to whether or not we perhaps pulled the trigger on export controls on semiconductors too early. For example, Paul Shari at the Center for New American Security earlier this year complains that perhaps we should have kept our powder dry, so to speak, waited into the future when China was still dependent on the United States for semiconductors and perhaps at that point pulling this lever would have more of an impact because semiconductors are getting better, AI is becoming more important, and so maybe if we waited into the future, then it would have an even better impact. However, there are a lot of points to push back here, one of them just being that It kind of makes this assumption that we will be able to pull that lever when the time comes, when, in fact, we really just don't know what the political situation in the United States will be and what our diplomatic situation with allies will be. There's also a lot of questions to ask about how much better semiconductors, at least under the paradigm we've been operating, can get, and whether or not we can really stay that far ahead of China, because one of the problems is that with Moore's law supposedly slowing down and Moore's law being the idea that the semiconductor um, density or computational power doubles roughly every like 12 to 24 months, um, that appears to be slowing down. We become, we're getting closer to the so-called atomic limits of semiconductor manufacturing. Mm -hmm. I mean, like these transistors at this point are smaller than viruses. It is extremely, extremely small. And some people have said that we may not be able to continue down this path for much longer. We're going to have to look at alternative methods of, say, stacking chips or organizing them in ways that we may not be able to contain or maintain a lead uh, against China, given that maybe the importance will no longer be in having these extremely, extremely sophisticated lithography machines and other kinds of technologies like that. Another thing is that we're still also very uncertain about what the computational requirements of AI will be in the future, whether we might be moving into a period of more reliance on compute or more reliance on data or more reliance on new algorithms that maybe are less data intensive or less compute intensive in some ways. So there are just many uncertainties. And I think that this position that we should just wait until the future to impose these are probably overconfident.
0: Hmm. Speaking of implementing export controls at the right time, as, as long as, you know, a lot of the technology is obviously U.S. manufactured and made, I guess I have a question about whether export controls might push China and other countries for that matter to sort of indigenize the technology and that this might have um, the consequence of pushing them towards making more Chinese made products.
2: So this is certainly an important and kind of fundamental concern to a lot of the objections about the use of the export controls at the present moment, as opposed to waiting until later. And I think it is a question we do need a lot of analysts thinking about and which we are quite uncertain about. But it does seem like there's almost a sort of consensus, at least among many of the people in think tanks that I've talked to, that China will not be able to just very quickly indigenize semiconductor manufacturing, that it should take at least like three to five years or more even. And so there are a lot of reasons to think that it's just extremely, extremely difficult to actually get the kinds of uh, yield rates, kinds of efficiency, and the level of sophistication for getting the cutting edge chips and like the five nanometer level for example but We also should be mindful of times in the past when we have faced technological surprise and where supposed consensus actually just crumbled. Um, For example, in the late 1940s, many American uh, analysts thought that there was no way that Soviet Union could get a bomb within, uh, the atomic bomb that is within five years. And lo and behold, within five years or prior to that, um, uh, they ended up being able to copy this technology and ultimately deploying it. I think there are a lot of important disanalogies between the Soviet Union and the atomic bomb and uh, semiconductors, but it is something to be mindful of that sometimes the so-called consensus may just actually prove to be wrong due to failure of lack of imagination or many other reasons.
0: Apart from export controls, you mentioned that there were a few tools in the toolbox. What, What are some other ways of attacking this issue apart from export controls?
2: Yeah, so two things to be looking at here are the first one being so-called on-hardware mechanisms or on-chip mechanisms to basically monitor and verify the kinds of activities that are carried out by these high-end semiconductors. There's still research being done on this by some people in think tanks and in the government and in these industries and it's important to keep in mind these kinds of verification mechanisms as perhaps an alternative that might allow us to still sell some high-end chips to china while at the same time monitoring it to make sure it's not being used for say military applications or other things of that sort um but this of course requires uh, that china would still be willing to buy it if we would have these monitoring Mm. mechanisms which maybe for some of their purposes they wouldn't but this might at least kind of split the incentives in china Um, whereas right now i mean all the commercial companies that would like to be able to use this are now dependent on kind of indigenous or smuggled chips uh whereas maybe in the future we might kind of split the incentives between commercial interests and government interests in China. A second thing to be looking at are some know your customer regulations for cloud compute providers in the United States. An important thing here is that even if we impose semiconductor export controls uh, on China, they might still be able to access or use American semiconductors or Taiwanese semiconductors by just relying on cloud compute providers in the United States. And if we just allow them to do whatever they want and don't have any kind of monitoring regimes or anything, then they could potentially be using this to train dual purpose capabilities in AI or to operating or for operating other Uh, things we don't want them to be doing. So there are, again, some people in think tanks and in the government looking at these potential avenues for regulation that are not on semiconductor export controls, but which are very importantly complementary to those controls.
0: Harrison, I want to say thank you so much for being a guest here on the SSP Weekly. We are very happy that you could give us some insights on this very technical issue. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Miriam, thank you for that discussion with Harrison. He always is um, really prescient on a lot of these themes that come from AI. So, so thank you, Harrison, for illuminating us. Uh, And I also think that this is really timely. Uh, I'm sure you saw on 60 Minutes this weekend, this past weekend, Mm -hmm. uh, the Five Eyes Chiefs, right? So, the chiefs of the intelligence agencies of the United States, Great Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, who were in Silicon Valley, in the greatest state of the Union, California, uh, (laughs) speaking to tech leaders about the unprecedented threat faced from Chinese espionage. So, I mean, that plays into what you said earlier about the small yard, high fence concept.
0: Absolutely. And it's so interesting how Chinese corporate and economic espionage really ties into this and as a national security threat. And really the U.S. introducing slowly but surely a new strategy um, quite different from how the U.S. has done it. I mean, honestly, since the Cold War. So fascinating and also fascinating to follow and see what the implications are, especially um, the reactions. Another part of it, which I'll Probably cover in some other episode is um, is the European perspective on this because mm. Europe should definitely not be forgotten in this. They don't give me that face. <laughs> <laughs> in another episode, I'll explain to you why they're important, Gareth. All right. So, Gareth. Yeah. Speaking of that area of the world. Yes. What do you have in store for us today?
1: Well, it was timely that the uh, our partners from. Uh, The South Pacific and Oceania were on 60 Minutes talking about intelligence because I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with Anna Basoli, who is the associate editor for the Indo-Pacific for the Georgetown Security Studies Review, of which this podcast is associated, to chat about the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and one of our closest and longest partners, Australia who, of course, the partnership has come into renewed focus because of our focus on the Indo-Pacific and the threats that are presenting themselves in that region, Uh, and also kind of the renewed vigor of the bilateral security relationship between our countries on intelligence sharing, Mm -hmm. on military exercises, on some basing agreements. Obviously, the Biden administration's premier foreign policy apparatus and policy that they've championed over the past several years in the Indo-Pacific has been the AUKUS partnership, Mm -hmm. right? Australia, UK, US meant to uh, build out Australia's indigenous submarine building capability to provide them with advanced submarines in a region uh, that has a need for undersea security, uh, but also to share best practices and technology and manufacturing prowess between the US, Great Britain and Australia and actually the Australian prime minister was in town this week meeting with the president for um, you know one of the few handful of state visits that the Biden administration has hosted over the last several years and so Anna and I have the opportunity to catch up on the status of the bilateral relationship the the, the status and the progress that AUKUS has made over its two pillars and a discussion more broadly of how Australia fits into the US's calculus in the Indo-Pacific region
0: let's dive into the interview
1: can't wait well, Anna Basali, thank you so much for joining us on the Precision Guided Podcast, SSP Weekly. It's great to have you.
3: Uh, thank you, Gareth. It's great to be here, uh, and it's great to be with our listener.
1: So, Anna, tell us a little bit about your role within the Georgetown Security Studies Review.
3: Uh, Sure. So, I'm the Associate Editor for the Indo-Pacific, which mostly implies two roles. Uh, One is to uh, assist and consult with writers in the Indo-Pacific section of the GSSR about their topics and about their article. And the second role is really mostly assisting with the expertise on the Indo-Pacific. I'm mostly focused on Naval Affairs and the Indo-Pacific is the shiny thing for for Naval Affairs right now. So, that's where my My um, expertise comes from.
1: Your combination of a background in naval affairs and in the Indo-Pacific is actually perfect for the topic of our conversation. And that is a review of the Biden administration's bilateral state visit here in D.C. with the Australian delegation headed by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. Uh, So I know you've done some research about uh, the, the tenor of the visit, the priorities, and what was accomplished. So catch us up on how the bilateral visit went.
3: Sure. So it seems to me that the bilateral visit went pretty well when it comes to the Biden and Albanese. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to pronounce it the Italian way, <laughs> the, <laughs> Albanese, um, the Albanese relationship. I think that's pretty strong. And there is a lot of alignment when it comes to that. Uh, I think the most interesting uh, part of the visit actually came, uh, I think it was either yesterday or today, when Albanese met with the new speaker of the house, Mike mm. Johnson. And is sort of like foster the Australian urgency to pass legislation. It's actually going to help the AUKUS deal, and I would like to underline that that legislation is fundamental to AUKUS for three reasons. First of all, Congress needs to approve proposals to authorize the transfer of these submarines to Australia. Uh, second of all, the legislation that Congress needs to pass uh, is going to allow the maintenance of U.S. submarines in Australia and Great Britain, which is another fundamental portion of the AUKUS deal. And then uh, Congress needs to authorize Australian funding for U.S. shipyards and the training of U.S. Uh, workers that are currently working in those shipyards.
1: So you're referencing the supplemental Bill that the Biden administration put forward to Congress. I think the, the total was an $105 billion request. And that was interestingly for Ukraine, Israel, and the Indo-Pacific, um, of which the, the the small part, mostly spent on the defense industrial base here in the country, as you indicated, is targeted for. So you're saying that the Prime Minister of Australia was meeting with the Speaker to discuss the importance of that of that supplement? Yeah,
3: I think I think he was really um bringing up the concerns that australia has in terms of the stall that has been happening in the house mm. and sort of like urging the speaker to say uh, listen this is a really important legislation for the deal and it's not just because it's in favor of australia it's also in favor of the us um i would like to specify that part of the that uh, 105 billion dollars that biden uh, requested part of uh, 50 Fifty billions of that is actually for the defense industrial base, but three point four billion is actually for the submarine industrial base, which is really uh, the fundamental portion of the AUKUS deal. And I think really what the Australians are have been concerned about, considering the stalling in the house, um, there has been no comment from Mike Johnson right now. But we're gonna see what happens in the house, and probably that's gonna suffice as a comment.
1: So you used a word in your description of the supplemental. AUKUS and so for those folks that are not uh, maritime obsessed like you and I particularly in that region can you explain to us what AUKUS is and why it's important on the bilateral relationship between the U.S. and Australia?
3: Sure so first of all AUKUS is an acronym as many <laughs> listeners would know defense context in the U.S. loves acronyms. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's an acronym that describes this uh, trilateral uh, security and defense partnership among Australia, uh, Britain, Uh, the UK and the US. So uh, just a little bit of background. AUKUS is this partnership that was announced in 2021. This is really important because when it was announced in 2021, as many would remember, it really created this sense of finally there is a little bit more structure Hmm. to the Indo-Pacific approach that the US has. And I think finally it became more Indo-Pacific than just Pacific. Australia has this very peculiar geographic position that is not just exclusively Pacific, but it's also very much towards the Indian Ocean which I think is also part of the reason why Australia is part of the quote with India, Japan and the US. I would also say that Okus was a really interesting partnership that really seemed to came out of the blue mm-hmm. uh, and especially for the French who previously had a, a deal with Australia about the uh, it was actually a multi-billion dollar deal about submarines that France was supposed to provide Australia with and there were many delays. Actually, that it was a really complicated uh, situation, and it created a little bit of controversy uh, with uh, the French that now seems to be uh, water under the bridge. I think a really high official in the French Navy actually said that they're now over the the fact of the AUKUS deal because France has many interests in the Pacific, especially about the exclusive economic zones. So the the way they summarized it was like, they need us and we need them. So I think that Right now, there is no doubt that AUKUS is the way forward for the U.S.-Australian uh, and British partnership in the pacific
1: Well said, and thank you for also explaining, while the partnership has many benefits for the three countries engaged, the uh, context of wider diplomatic relations between Australia, the U.S., the United Kingdom, and other close partners like France, and I'm glad to hear that. Um, the French see the the benefit of future technology cooperation and undersea capability now that we're a little bit removed from the shock of the canceling of of the deal between Australia and France. Now, I'd like to dive a little bit into the specific structure of AUKUS just so folks can have a sense of what exactly the, the partnership entails. And I know there's two pillars to the framework. Can you describe Pillar 1 and and Pillar 2 for us?
3: Uh, Sure. So Pillar 1 is mostly about um, increasing the submarine industrial base in Australia. Pillar 1 is a tech-sharing portion of the agreement which says that the U.S. is going to share nuclear propulsion for submarines with the Australian, and specifically with the Royal Australian Navy. Now, this pillar is specifically important because right now Australia has a nascent uh, submarine industrial base, but it doesn't, it didn't have nuclear proportion yet. So this is a fundamental shift in policy for the US and also a fundamental shift in operations for the Australians too. The second pillar of the deal is actually is an information and technology sharing deal, which I think is already underway, but is is really hard to detect how advanced it is because again, Australia is uh, already part of the Five Eyes, is, is already a strong partner of both the US and the UK. So I think it's mostly a strengthening of uh, preceding conditions of security and defense interest. I think actually the first pillar is the most interesting because effectively it provides Australia with uh, advanced technology in the, their submarine fleet and force. And it also provides them with nuclear proportion submarines, which was a real the real novelty of the deal.
1: I want to underscore the significance of the Australians receiving nuclear propulsion technology from the United States, the only other country that the U.S. has shared, what is really the U.S.'s asymmetrical advantage in this region is with the United Kingdom. And so to bring in Australia is very significant. Can you talk a little bit about the geographic or the tactical reasons why nuclear propulsion would be significant for the Australians in such a large geographic region?
3: So I think there are several reasons for that. The first of all is that we have to consider where Australia stands. Australia is in the Indo-Pacific, but its place on the southern portion of the Indo-Pacific basically sits beneath the the Straits of Malacca and all the Straits region that actually sits within the Southeast and South China Sea region. What happens is that Australia is perfectly positioned to have submarines depart from the south and really reach South Asia and especially the South China Sea. If we look at the geography of the U.S. alliances, we have Japan in the northeast, Asian region, and then we have Australia to the south. In that way, the U.S. can be assured that actually its submarine force are going to cover as a wide portion uh, as the Indo-Pacific as possible. Um, I also think this is a really important deal for the Australian and this is something that people probably are not really aware of but there is a debate in Australia about the size of the fleet that Australia has and that's really important because I think that there, there is a portion of the Australian thin tank intellectuals they actually want a bigger fleet for Australia and they want a more powerful fleet for Australia. Australia has this idea or trauma that eventually if it's not strong enough it, it can be cut off it can be abandoned and i think that's actually comes from world war ii when the british could not provide defense to australia i would also say that this deal is really important because it places a lot of pressure on australia especially on the maritime and defense side to further cut their ties with china mm. australia never had cut in terms of like nuclear sharing or tech sharing. But there are some important ties that, that China has with Australia on the trade side in terms of critical mineral supplies. But even most important of all is actually the, the deal, the 99 year uh, long lease that China has of the Darwin port. Darwin is one of the um, northernmost cities in Australia. It's a strategic port. Geographically, it's perfectly positioned to actually look up at the South China Sea and the Pacific portion. It looks up to the Indonesian region where the Straits are. So it's a really important port. And China so so far has a 99-year-long lease of this port that was actually recently reviewed right before the visit. And it was actually found compliant with Australian regulation. I think there is a strategic calculus that the Australians are making. It's just like, if we have to use regulation to cut China loose on the deal of Darwin port, We need to do it in a specific context if strategic tensions arise well the tension is going to be high enough and even if it's a regulatory reason that's going to be seen as escalatory so australia is really counting in strategic options here to figure out how it can best position itself with not just within the region but within the alliance with the united states and the united kingdom within the alliance of the quote. And definitely as a really important uh, actor in the region as well. So I think there are several uh, layers to why submarines are important to Australia. And I also think there are several layers to why Australia is so important for AUKUS and why AUKUS is so important for Australia.
1: Well, that was a very artful way to unpack a lot of different uh, layers of this onion, both on the strategic side with all of the players that you mentioned, but also on the, on the more tactical side, right? The, the recognition that nuclear propulsion-based submarines can get to where they need to get to faster and they can stay where they need to stay longer. So lastly, Anna, I was struck by your comment at the beginning of our discussion about the supplemental request to Congress that the Biden administration put forward. Why is money being requested by the president for a trilateral deal with two foreign partners Why is that money being spent in the U.S.? What does the U.S. industrial base have to do with the AUKUS partnership?
3: So this is a really important portion of the AUKUS deal, especially right now. Right now, the deal is that uh, the U.S. is going to help Australia grow its indigenous industrial submarine uh, base for the future. Australia right now has a nascent one, but it's not as, uh, as good as the United States. Part of the reason is that the submarine's industrial base in the U.S. needs funding, regardless of the AUKUS deal. Uh, This has been something that has been talked about a lot of times. There is also an interesting uh, development recently where the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, released a report uh, that actually says that by selling the three Virginia-class submarines to Australia right now, the U.S. is de facto Uh, committing itself of being unable to absorb the loss of these three submarines until the mid 2030s. So this is really important because right now the rate of submarines production of U.S. uh, submarine industrial base is 1.2, 1.3 a year. The idea is that the U.S. uh, submarine industrial base could get to two submarines a year but it will not happen until 2028. Now, if we look at the timeline, we understand that the, the fact that the US may not recover from the, the, the selling of three Virginia-class nuclear-powered submarines to Australia, by mid 2030s, but it will only start, maybe, producing two submarines a year, since um, from the 2028, it really reduces the the timeline for actually growing the industrial base and growing the submarines force that the US actually need. So, while it's really important for, for on the Australian and diplomatic side that actually the US provides the Virginia class submarine to Australia, that's also important because those Virginia-class submarines will help the Australian training their sailors to maintain the submarines, to operate the submarines. It's going to allow their industrial base to grow to understand how to actually manage that load of every nuclear-powered submarine produced possibly within Australia. It's also bringing some Australian funding in the US, which is really important, but it really sits on a really fragile a situation when it comes to the submarine industrial base, which is a, a, an industrial base that is not necessarily guaranteeing that it can recover either from this selling or from the conditions of this deal in time to produce the mass force of submarine that the U.S. is foreseeing that it would need in Asia.
1: Yeah, Anna, that that's a, a really concise way to describe a lot of different <laughs> complex interlocking parts. And what you really highlighted is that AUKUS is a deal of critical importance not just to the U.S.'s national security and to global stability, but also to a close partner of ours, Australia, and its own defense economy and its own strategic situation. And yet this is not a deal that is risk-less, right? This is a deal that as the CBO pointed out, could potentially require the U.S. to accept more risk in the short term and its own undersea capability, of which it's relying on in in the event of any contingency in the Indo-Pacific, but also that we fail to deliver on the promises that we made to these allies on the time where that capability is most needed. And so I think it'll be interesting to see as we move forward how all of those things work together and, and how these three partners are able to navigate all this complexity and and this risk. So thank you for explaining that to our listeners. uh, And I know that they benefited from your experiences I have.
3: Thank you.
0: I think it's really interesting how Anna raised these points about the Australian and U.S. strategic partnership, right, especially considering the importance of Taiwan and and even Jake Sullivan, in the same speech, as I, uh, as I talked about before, calling, you know, the PRC the largest geopolitical threat to U.S. without comparison. And I think the strategic partnership with Australia really, I don't know, just emphasizes that, doesn't it?
1: Oh, and I, I can't help but think about the interview that you and I did with Mick Ryan yeah. in the spring mm-hmm. about his book, White Sun War. Um, you know, we, we, one of the questions, a line of reasoning that we were able to pursue with him was, you know, in the event of the worst happening, deterrence failing and a cross strait incident occurring, you know, what is the role and the capability of Australia yeah. to provide support to an issue that is as important to them as it is to the United States, as it is to Japan? And, you know, he, I was struck by his answer, which is like, you know, our intent to support our, our closest allies, is there now we need to work on continuing to develop those capabilities to yeah. both enhance deterrence but also provide a credible response mm-hmm. And I think like I mean like Japan Australia has a lot of diplomatic prowess particularly in its you know in kind of the Southeast Asia mm-hmm. Pacific island region in which it has you know a notable presence, uh, some important bilateral partnerships with some of those critical countries. And so to, you know, to enter this region with Australia's support, you know, to continue to provide an assessment of the, um, the benefit and the role that the United States plays in that region, you know, along with a credible ally like Australia, like I think that that is an important way to kind of um, enhance our diplomatic engagement.
0: Yeah. Well said. I think that is it for today. That is. Those were the two stories we had to cover for you guys. Um, We want to say thank you to Anna and to Harrison for contributing with their expertise and knowledge. Yes. We are back next week, next Friday. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend.